0: Hi hi welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today we're going to be talking about trust in public officials, the so-called management by PR, the coronavirus epidemic, and the rising wave of anti-intellectualism across the globe and across the political spectrum. So without further ado, let's get started. First thing that we have to understand is the political dynamics of crises like coronavirus. Simply put, people are reactionary, and that means politics is reactionary as well. People aren't going to appreciate, or even notice, a lot of the things that government actually does passively, things that they do in order to stop further problems from arising. And because of this, there's not actually a lot of political incentive for people to put those proactive programs in place. After all, no crisis means no political boost. Of course, you're going to have to manage the pandemic well in order to actually have your polling ratings go up. You can see this happening in Canada with Justin Trudeau, or in Germany with Angela Merkel. In fact, there's even a negative reaction if people feel like they've been cracked down too harshly on certain problems that could have been more catastrophic but ended up not being so because of those preventative actions. However, with regards to the coronavirus with the extent that it's gotten to, obviously, there has to be significant actions done in order to combat it. Nonetheless, you see a lot of politicians around the world gaining some credit for essentially putting out fires that they themselves started, or at least let spread. This is because, despite some areas being heavily impacted, as long as there is the appearance of proper management, as long as there is something actionable that is being done by the government, then people generally want to find some sort of security, and having a strong government official who is communicating effectively is one such way to get that. However, there actually is a much greater problem with regards to crisis events such as the pandemic. That is, people are incredibly poor at judging their scale, People tend to gravitate to extremes, either going outright and denying that the crisis even exists, or thinking that it won't actually have any effect, to going and being fully paranoid about it. This is a fundamental human fallacy, a thing that people get wrong unless they are trained to do otherwise. However, there's actually a much more serious problem that has to be addressed in order to understand how important the government's response is with regards to coronavirus. There's a strong problem with a reliance on personal experience with regards to this, a reliance on emotional connections to those very people around you. This is because when you have something that seems as severe as a crisis, people tend to jump to immediate decisions. They tend not to be able to actually break things down, not to further research more information, and instead try to jump to conclusions, and often a black and white conclusion, based on how they feel about the virus. That's because most people don't actually have the training in order to interpret what various points on a graph mean, what various degrees of spread coronavirus has, and what impact that may have on the actions of themselves or the government. Because of this, you see a very fine dance between economics, government management, and the degree of the pandemic. You see that the people in more harder-hit areas are often more willing to tighten restrictions, even to a degree where it would not actually be productive. And you can see the opposite in areas that have been largely unaffected or have not yet been affected tending to generally have an opposition to restrictions, not trusting in coronavirus, not trusting some of the officials, and generally having more anti-intellectualism. And the polling almost universally shows this effect. And if you think about it, it is something built fundamentally into human decision making. If you do have those impacts in your real life, then you're kind of forced to come to the reality of it. However, there is a role for statistics to play, there is a strong role for science to play, and people should be kind of centralizing on those trusted, developed, organized government authorities and scientists in order to understand the nuance that most often is lost when you make those judgments based on the people around you. Fundamentally, this is built on a failure to imagine and to contextualize numbers. You can see this most often happening with wealth, for example. A lot of people don't understand exactly how much money a trillion dollars is. They don't understand how much of an impact that would have on ordinary people. Sure, you can ask them to do the math and they know it's a million times a million. They can know how to write it out on paper, but they're not actually going to understand what effect a trillion dollars will have when put into investment, when put into a community, etc. They don't actually have a tangible way of understanding it. Because the average person is not trained in those things, then you're going to have problems with something as complicated as coronavirus where you absolutely need to think in probabilities, where you have to be able to conceptualize risk, and make that calculation of what subset of activities you should be willing to give up for various degrees of virus spread. Of course, this is why government authorities, and particularly well-developed, trusted government authorities, are such a fixture of democratic and developed nations. When you have that fundamental emotional connection, it can be easily manipulated by things like politics, even by people who are running Ponzi schemes, and generally just be abused by people who are trying to direct people in the wrong direction. This is why the infrastructure of science is so important, and unfortunately, when you don't have that, you end up with something I like to call management by PR. Now this has happened in various countries across the world, most notably Brazil, the United States, and to some degree in India, where the main idea is to downplay the effect of coronavirus in order to avoid some of the auxiliary effects that they may have on the economy. Essentially. If you are able to force people to go to work, if you are going to be able to avoid that side effect of paranoia, then despite various health consequences, despite a death rate of around 0.5%, you are going to be able to avoid some of the more devastating economic consequences. However, the problem here is that you're not actually going to be able to avoid the chilling effect in the long term. People are still going to stay home, people are still going to make decisions for their lives, And especially if they haven't been given proper instruction by the government, they're going to do so in a manner that's destructive, and they're going to do so in a manner that's paranoid when that eventually reaches their area, when they actually have a reliance on that personal connection, that emotional judgement, instead of relying on the information that should be given to them by the government. Fundamentally, management by PR is about handling a short-term problem such that it doesn't actually sink down to the level of the individual of affecting regular people. You see this happen a lot in economics, but it just doesn't work for coronavirus, because once those cases spread, once those ordinary people are infected, then you're going to have that emotional connection override any sort of government information that could be provided, especially if the trust isn't already there. That's why it's so important, as I said before, in order to keep those closely regulated and highly trusted authorities. Of course, the reason why we have science is because there are various mental techniques that we can use to break down information, to analyze statistics, to determine how we should proceed forward, and while science is not always perfect, it is the absolute best, the gold standard of what we have in preventing these fallacies, in preventing these emotional overridings, in preventing these mistakes that come from making emotional connections or from previous assumptions or otherwise and is absolutely the most straightforward way to draw a connection between what can be observed and what should be done about it. Science is fundamentally based on repeated trials and consistency of being able to reproduce the same results every time and being able to isolate the factors so that you actually know what is causing the effects that happen, so you actually know how coronavirus spreads, that you actually know what various proposals, what various policies would have in slowing this down. Of course, science is not perfect. You had medical advice early on, warning against the use of masks, or trying to dissuade the use of masks, and this was generally due to the impact of other coronaviruses, viruses from the same family as COVID-19, that tended to not be affected by masks. However, later on, further information was collected, more time was given to these scientists in order to analyze the effects of various techniques, and this information showed that, oh, coronavirus or COVID-19 is different from other viruses in the same family, it is strongly affected by wearing masks, and that you should absolutely do this in order to protect your health. And yes, science can change, especially science where there has been a very short period of time, say one or two months, in order to actually study something. There are built-in mechanisms in science for error correcting, of review, of reproducibility, of changing the answers if there's something that's been found out to be wrong. And that's the most important thing to keep in mind, that the information is constantly being examined, that people have a higher standard of verification that makes it essentially impossible for a lot of this highly verified information to turn out to be fabricated. However, there are various areas, particularly in politics, where statistics are used, where proper scientific procedures are not followed, and where data is generally used to misrepresent the ideas that has been collected for. The most important question to ask yourself here is, what the actual variable is, and if it's being controlled. This means that whether the thing that's being studied is the thing that's directly causing the effect, or if there's some other third factor that's actually influencing this. So I'm going to compare two cases here, and one of them is a good use of science and one of them is a bad use of science. Let's start off with the mask study that I already talked about. This is a good use of science. They essentially had the same types of people, the same groups of people, and some of them wore masks, and some of them did not wear masks, and they controlled for various factors, such as age and health, and they made sure that the only thing was different was that one group of people wore masks and the other did not. And in this case, they found that the people who wore masks had a lower risk of spreading the disease. This is science that's conducted very effectively, because they go right at the thing that they're trying to measure, the effectiveness of masks, and they make sure that any third factor that could have influence is removed. Now let's look at an extremely poor example, the conspiracy theory about 5G towers and coronavirus cases. It is true that areas that have 5G towers have a higher likelihood of cases. However, this is clearly debunked by looking at a simple fact, that areas with 5G towers also have higher population density, and when you have more people packed into a smaller area, then there's going to be a higher amount of cases. For this conspiracy theory, they didn't control the actual variable, they only looked at one side of the coin, they only looked at cities with 5G, and if you actually looked at areas without 5G that had similar population densities, then you would realize that 5G actually has no impact at all. They didn't actually control for that third factor, they didn't account for population, which ended up being the root cause of the higher amount of cases. Now, you can see that this type of junk science is most often used in politics to promote an idea that is not actually true. By following improper procedures, you can imply something that isn't actually true. And it is very important to go and verify your sources to verify that the science that is conducted, the data that is collected, does follow these steps, does control for the actual variable, and does eliminate all of these other factors. A very good example of some of this junk science that seems to be catching on more and more is various studies about race, most often used by racists in order to declare one race better than the other. Obviously, this is racism, and they use a lot of this obfuscation, saying that, oh, if you just look at a graph of certain races and certain statistics, like IQ, that you see a correlation, but obviously they leave out a lot of the other variables that they don't actually control for. They don't control for wealth, they don't control for education, and all sorts of other things that are not actually due to race. And because of that, they can draw a false conclusion to try to push a political message that is not true. So, the most important thing to actually do is to make sure that what's being studied is actually being controlled and that the other factors are out of the picture. Let's look actually at a good example of that sociology being used in practice in order to show hiring bias. There was a famous study where there were identical resumes, one with an African-American name and one with a more white-American name. And they took these two resumes, which otherwise had exactly the same information, and they submitted it to various companies. Now, eventually, they found that the white-sounding name had a higher chance of actually being called for an interview. And because of this, because they were able to remove all other factors, they were able to actually ascertain that there is some sort of hiring bias at the time at which the study was conducted. Now, a very bad example of these statistics being used is with race and higher education. Of course, more often than not, when they look at these statistics, they don't control for wealth, they don't control for geographic area, and as such, they try to draw a false narrative that generally tends to be racist or that generally tends to cause discriminatory policies to be implemented that is not actually based on the factors that are actually affecting the problem, such as well such as geography, that they completely fail to control for. Once again, this is the difference between good science, like a lot of the information that we have on the coronavirus, and fake science, like the conspiracies around 5G. However, because there are a lot of these studies, often some that don't even follow the proper procedures coming out of some educational institutions in the weaker sciences, you do tend to see a rising wave of intellectualism that essentially smears these institutions as corrupt. Now. We do have to draw a fine line here. There are very legitimate accusations of nepotism with regards to some of these colleges and universities. There was the college admission scandal in the United States, as well as legacy admissions, which is blatantly corrupt. However, the fact that there is some self-dealing here that absolutely should be corrected does not actually make an impact on the quality of the science that is being done, especially with regard to some of the more pure sciences. There needs to be a distinction drawn between the psychologies and sociologies of the worlds that have a laxer standard for the quality of information collected for the isolation of variables compared to something like physics, something like biology, something like epidemiology that has to be reviewed, that has to be extremely consistent and reproducible and transparent, and that has to be verified by many sources in order to confirm the accuracy of the information. Comparing those low-quality, misleading conspiracy theories, To something like proper science, like epidemiology or biology, it's like comparing night and day. It's just not the same. The standards are completely different, and that's absolutely important to keep in mind. This means that when you have a doctor, when you have a scientist, when you have an actual researcher who's been trained to follow all of these procedures, to train to actually study the thing that is being discussed, then you're going to have a high quality of information that they're going to be 99.99999% correct, and that you should be trusting them when you're talking about coronavirus decision-making, and when you're talking about policies for the future. Most important thing to understand here is that data is consistent, and while narratives that are drawn from them are not, you have to be able to tell the difference. Just verify the science, look for reproducibility, look for transparency that they actually published how they did their research, look for the things I talked about before, with regards to correlation versus causation, if they've actually isolated the thing that's being studied, and make sure that all of these processes are followed. And if they are, then there is no possible room for error to be introduced. Now, we already talked about this in our last episode, but there are a ton of built-in factors into the media ecosystem that cause them to misrepresent information, particularly in the political sphere. To make matters worse, and I think this is something that presidential candidate Andrew Yang said, Many people who are in economically poor situations tend to have lower rates of understanding. They tend to fare worse at things like problem-solving of analyzing information by around 10 IQ points. And this is something that makes sense. If you're constantly stressed, if you're constantly having to think about financial decision-making, then you're going to have less energy and less time to actually analyze the other things that are happening around you. Because of all of these factors, you have a tendency of the media, and especially in political media, to actively mislead people. This is why having an objective institution is so important. Having an institution that goes beyond politics, that has been established, that is outside of the manipulation of various media forces, is so important. Of course, there has been a wave of undermining institutions that have happened in recent times, and this is a fundamental failure of various nations, often nations that aren't sufficiently developed, to actually build that trust with the community, to actually have a strong track record, to actually have a demonstrably transparent infrastructure that actually conducts the science in the public eye, that makes it so abundantly obvious that they're working hard to provide the highest quality information to everyone. To make matters worse, people generally tend to have an extremely poor understanding of how trust actually works. They tend to rely on a gut feeling instead of actually analyzing and examining a track record, particularly of something that has a long history, like a scientific institution. For example, people tend to have an extremely difficult time separating the personal from the political. They tend to look at a person's personal habits and their own actions instead of actually analyzing the information that they present and the information that they presented in the past. To make matters worse, you have a tendency towards extremes. As I talked about before, you have a tendency to either believe everything or to oppose everything to go against even something that a well-recognized health official says. Now such people will go to any sort of small contradiction to try to smear an entire institution as untrustworthy. This is what happened with the mask problem that we already talked about before where there were problems in interpreting the data from previous coronaviruses that did end up being different with COVID-19. That was a mistake. This does not undermine the efficiency of science. We have to keep in mind that people are going to make mistakes, that people are going to make assumptions, especially when they have a very short time frame to actually put those things out people have to understand and be able to think in probabilities. They have to actually analyze all of the different statements that have been talked about, and instead of thinking about just one thing that has been wrong, look at the track record as a whole, and you will see that science is absolutely the gold standard, that it has a lower error rate than essentially any sort of media as a whole, especially political media. And if you understand this, the next step should be to put away your fundamental ideological beliefs, to put away those pseudo-moralistic assumptions, those very assumptions that mislead you, that people use to manipulate you, and to just look at the science for what it is. Moving on, we are going to talk about the broader political ramifications of this politics of trust. Of course, it plays a role in many political systems and democracies that goes far beyond times of crises such as the pandemic. Of course, trust is a good thing. Politicians who actually keep their promises are much better than those who aren't. That's obvious. The problem with this politics of trust is that it can easily be manipulated. It can be manipulated in ways that distract people from the actual solutions that would benefit them, from the actual trustworthiness and the record of many politicians, and instead play to many various indicators, many of those fallacies, poor ways of thinking, that essentially forms an emotional connection and loyalty between a person and a politician, without actually proving any sort of trusted track record. Of course, the most obvious case here is party loyalty. When someone is loyal to a specific party or ideology, they're going to incorporate more pseudo-moralistic beliefs into their worldview. This means that they're going to have different fundamental appeals that can easily be played to without actually solving the problems at hand. This leads to the sort of empty platitudes that many politicians make in order to try to win over these voters. You can play to the types of people who are most easily appealed to without actually promising anything without any sort of accountability, and there'll be an incentive to mislead people in order to pretend to be trustworthy when a politician really is not. Another version of this type of strategy involves the strongman appeal, most famous by many South American dictators who ended up being incredibly corrupt and not trustworthy at all. However, by making false promises, planning to take on everything themselves and casting the opposition as corrupt, they often manage to win power, and you can see that many of these strongmen are growing in areas in the West as well. Of course, this is just another form of the politics of distraction that I talked about last episode, where many political media sources, and especially the politicians themselves, are trying to distract from the actual problems and instead replace them with some other sort of abstract signaling in order to win votes without promising anything. This is further enabled by the media corruption, where various political media sources do have a bias, do try to favor one candidate over the other, particularly in internal elections or primaries. Ultimately, the effect that this has on a group of people is that you have this pseudo-trustworthiness that turns into an appeal or a battleground all on its own. This means that anyone who wants to win an election is going to have to invest time and effort into playing these games, into using this sort of dark magic to appeal to the more foolish, more fallacious side of human nature in order to win over those people who vote based on pseudo-trustworthiness. It takes attention away from the problems that those very people face and make it so that it's easier for someone who's trying to distract, someone who is not actually competent, and someone who is going to lead the country in the wrong way to win an election. The most important thing in a democracy is the feedback loop. That information goes from the voters to the politicians about what they prefer. Those politicians then try to implement those solutions and take care of the problems that are affecting those voters. The media then is supposed to disseminate information about what the politicians are doing and the results of their programs or their solutions to the public. However, when you have a public that is more concerned with this fake trustworthiness instead of concerned with their own problems when it comes to electing politicians, then you're going to break the cycle, which means that politicians aren't going to actually try to solve the problems that are most urgent for their constituents. Of course, there are still a majority of people who actually want solutions to their problems. However, this problem of party loyalty, calcification, and distraction from actual solutions is something that's increasingly growing in power. In various democracies. So, let's talk about how to solve this problem and how to solve the similar problems that we have with dealing with the coronavirus and other crises like it. The most important thing, as usual, is public education. You need an informed public in order to be able to make these decisions. We need them to be able to use those processes that we talked about before to avoid fallacious thinking, to avoid being misled and manipulated by politicians, and to be able to dig through the data and understand if it's verified and if it's actually pointing towards any given political narrative for themselves. This means that we need to teach media literacy, we need to have trust in our public education systems in order to actually provide an objective measurement. And it's honestly not that hard. We just need someone to transcribe the very same things that people are doing when they're observing lab results in various fields of science to whatever public information is received, particularly with regards to politics. Of course, this does have strong political implications to various electoral systems, and that means there will be opposition from those who are trying to keep the status quo. Politicians benefit the less accountable they are to the public, because this means that there's less risk for those involved. If they make a poor bill, if they pass a poor policy, then you're going to see lower approval ratings and you might see the loss of the next election. However, with a public that they're not accountable to, with a public that's fundamentally built up by loyalty, by this calcification, instead of by solving their problems, you're going to have less risk for the politicians if they actually make a mistake. This means that we're going to have to add more and more political pressure in order to actually get these changes through. However, there is another factor and another way to do this. In fact, we can note that it's actually not that hard to educate people on these fundamental problems, on these mistakes that they make, when they're processing information. In fact, just by listening through to this point in the podcast, you probably have a much greater understanding, and you can have a fair chance of being inoculated against a lot of that misinformation that happens in politics. You already have the systems that you need just from listening to me talk about them. You already have a baseline level of understanding on the systems that you actually need. And in fact, that's all that's necessary. Another important tool for actually convincing people of these methods, of moving forward, of implementing them into the public consciousness, is to remember coronavirus. Coronavirus is a unique time in all of our lives, much like World War II, and much like many other catastrophic events throughout history. It is a turning point, and it's a turning point that we can use in order to push the public towards a better understanding of science, towards an avoidance of those fallacies, and towards a better, more accurate way of thinking. We can remind people, remember when coronavirus struck, remember how we deferred to the data, remember how we respected the public officials, and we were able to progress because of that. If we keep those things in mind, if at the end of the day, we learn our lesson, we learn what worked when dealing with the virus, and we realized which people were right, most notably 99.99% of the time, the medical and scientific professionals, then we'll be able to move forward with that consciousness, with that awareness, that those are the people that we should be listening to with regards to the future. We should be deferring to science, we should be looking to the data, and we should be actually trying to target the problems that each of us experience, whether they be economic, whether they be foreign policy issues, or anything else. If we keep this in mind, and we spread this knowledge out to all of the people we know, all the people we are adjacent to, then we're going to be able to create a better public, and through that, a better media infrastructure, and a better political environment for all of us. So, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but as always, I'm not accepting donations for this podcast, and I'm just doing it for the public good. And if you want this to be something that becomes more widespread, if you want this to become something that we can all use in order to improve our own understanding of political systems, then just like, comment, subscribe, and share, post it on your social media or anything like that, and help educate more people, help prevent the spread of misinformation by inoculating them against a lot of those human fallacies. It's easy, it takes almost none of your time, and it's the most convenient thing. If you've already listened this far into the podcast, then hopefully you'll join me in creating a better environment and in just piling up the pressure on those various political structures to actually make a substantive change in actually taking a step towards becoming more honest and becoming more effective in dealing with their problems. If that sounds like a world you live in, then please, help make this podcast grow.